sing it. And uh, as they were singing that tonight, I thought about, you know, a lot of times as men, mankind, we take things to extremes and we get off the point sometimes of what the Lord's trying to do. And uh, there's two ditches when you look at salvation quite often. There's a ditch that says uh, that, uh, you know, we have our free will. We have so much free will that we could get saved and lose our salvation and get out of the hand of God, get out from under the care of God. Then there's another camp that says, well, you have nothing to do with salvation. God just comes down and God just strong arms you, arrests you, and uh, saves you, and you have nothing to do about it. But biblically, uh, really, it's right in the middle. Uh, we believe in whosoever will. We believe in a free choice. And if you're saved tonight, you made that choice to accept Christ as your Savior. But also, we can't deny the sovereignty of God. And I thought about what that song talks about, how... I thought about my own life, and you, no doubt you can say the same thing if you're saved tonight. The sovereignty of God started working in your life long before you got saved. Started channeling you, putting you in the right places, uh, getting in contact with the right people, being in the right churches, hearing the gospel, <clears throat> maybe working in a place where the co-worker was a witness to you. That's the sovereignty of God. He does everything, and he did everything on Calvary, and then he does everything that can be done to woo us and to draw us and to show us how good it is to be saved. And then through that, he allows us to exercise our own will and believe on him and be saved. And I'm thankful for that tonight. I'm glad, I'm glad for salvation, amen. I'm glad that God wants sinners saved. And that's his desire. And uh, that ought to be our desire tonight. That ought to be our main desire more than anything else. It's desire that people get saved. And I appreciate the Lord tonight. Appreciate that old song. If you would, let's turn to Joshua chapter 10. They said, go ahead, Brother Ron. Go ahead. Yes, sir. Testify. Amen. days. Amen. Still the same. Hallelujah. Appreciate that, brother. Amen. Go ahead, brother. Boy, it's good to go back down memories lane, be reminded when you got saved. Amen. Appreciate that experience. I know it's more than that. We get, we get in through the experience of salvation, and that begins our Christian life. It doesn't end it, uh, but I'm thankful I can go back in my mind and remember that. I'm glad I, I have that. And there may be a day in my, my life that I can't remember that, or you can't remember that, but I'm glad that doesn't change the transaction. It's still real. Appreciate the Lord tonight. Amen. He's good. He's worthy to be praised. All right, Joshua chapter 10, Joshua chapter 10, we're continuing on in our study in the book of Joshua, and tonight we want to pick up in verse number 1, and we're probably going to go a couple more chapters, I, I've been trying to pray and just uh, do what the Lord would have us to do when we get over into chapter 12, uh, interesting things, but it begins to talk about the division of the land and 
the roster of the kings in Canaan, and not that there's not anything in that, but it goes into a lot of uh, the history of that. So we may either skip a few chapters as we go on toward the end of the book, or we may, uh, may stop there for a while. We'll just see. But tonight in chapter 10, I want to continue looking at this, uh, this city of Gibeon, the Gibeonites, and some things uh, more here in the, that the Scripture has for us. So if you're able to stand tonight, we'll stand together as we reverence the reading of the Word and begin in uh, chapter 10, verse 1, and let's read down to verse number 10. The Bible said, Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it as he had done to Jericho and her king, so he had done to Ai and her king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, as one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai. And all the men thereof were mighty. Therefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent unto Hoham, king of Hebron, and unto Piram, king of Jarmuth, and to Japhiah, king of Lachish, and to Debir, Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up unto me and help me, for we, that me, we may smite Gibeon. For it hath made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore the five kings of the Amorites... The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered themselves together and went up, they and all their host, and encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua to the camp of Gilgal, saying, Slack not thy hand from thy servants. Come up to us quickly, save us, help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into thine hand, and there shall not a man of them stand before thee. Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly, and went up from Gilgal all night. And the Lord discomfited them before Israel, and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and chased them along the way, that goeth up to Beth Horon, and smote them at Azekah unto Makedah. Let's read verse 11. And it came to pass, as they fled from before Israel, and were in the going down of Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah, and they died. And there were more which died in the hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with a sword. Let's pray together tonight. Father, we want to thank you again for the privilege of being here tonight. Thank you for this midweek service. Uh, Lord, thank you for your people, good number of people that have gathered here this evening. Lord, I know that we've all had busy weeks and uh, we fought the world and the flesh and all the things out there. Lord, I pray just for a few moments here tonight in the remainder of this service that we would hear from heaven, you would encourage the people of God. Lord, I believe everybody that's here tonight is here because they want to be here and they have a desire to be here. I know many people tonight all across the land and even in the church world uh, don't see any significance of Wednesday night services, but I'm glad there's a crowd here tonight that does. And Lord, I pray that you'd honor their effort and their diligence uh, by sending us a word from heaven. Lord, I, I believe there's a great truth here tonight. Help me to be faithful, uh, to bring it to light, we pray. And Lord, touch hearts, and especially if there might be someone not saved tonight, remind them of how good it is uh, to be saved, that they might turn to you before it's too late. 
But we'll thank you for all you do. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Thank you for standing and honoring God's word. Now, if you remember in chapter 9, we looked at two different messages in chapter 9. We talked about the uh, wiliness or the deception of the Gibeonites and how deceptive they were and how they used deceit, trickery. The Bible uses the word wilily. Uh, they were very crafty in what they did and snuck in unawares and disguised themselves. And we talked about how awful that was and looked at some things uh, according to that. Now, in chapter 10, I want to look at the Gibeonites in a good light. Again, you see a lot of typology as you go through these Old Testament books. And, and I know we have to be careful about that. We sure don't want to make things in the Scripture that are not there. <clears throat> but I see a great truth here tonight. I've been looking at this this week, especially. see a great truth here tonight I want to bring to you that I think will be an encouragement. Uh, if you'll notice in our text, if you followed along as we read and, and understood what we were reading about here tonight, you find the Gibeonites now are in trouble. These five kings of the Amorites have come up and surrounded them. Uh, and the reason why they've surrounded them because of their league with the Gibeonites. That's the whole reason why this is going on in chapter 10. So when this happens, they cry out to Joshua, and Joshua now is going to come to their rescue. And I want to look at these verses tonight, give you this thought on the comfort, the comfort of our covenant with Christ. The comfort of our covenant with Christ. Now, even though we know the Gibeonites use trickery and deception here in chapter 10 and looking even at chapter 9, we have to admit that they did make a league with Israel. And uh, they were wily, but yet they were smart enough to do that. And in doing so now, when it gets to chapter 10, and even on after that, it's going to benefit them greatly. And I want you to notice a few things about this tonight and how it compares or goes along with the covenant that we have with Christ. Now, the greatest covenant we have with Christ is salvation, the covenant of salvation. And if you're saved tonight, if you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you've entered into that covenant. What's so good about that covenant in the book of Hebrews, the Bible talks about God could swear by no greater, so he swore by himself. Referring back to that Abrahamic covenant and how God put Abraham to sleep and walked between those pieces there with the smoking flax and the burning lamp. And what that was was God being both sides of the covenant. Most of the time in a covenant between man to man, you see one man coming to another man coming together and saying, all right, we're going to join, we're going to make covenant together. Uh, they would walk between those pieces of animal sacrifice a lot of times and declare that if I break this covenant, let me be such as one of these uh, animals that were sacrificed. But Hebrews tells us that our salvation is not based on anything we've done other than, of course, receiving the Lord. But he could swear by no greater. He swore by himself. God being the institutor of the covenant and being the one by himself that keeps that covenant. So tonight we find now that Joshua, being a type of Christ, is going to come and help the Gibeonites because of the league that they had previously made with them. Now let me give you a few things about this. I hope it will encourage you tonight. First of all, look at the enemy's jealousy. We find it immediately when we get into chapter number 10. The Bible said in verse 1, uh, it came to pass, this, this king, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it. 
as he had done to Jericho and her king, and so he had done to Ai and her king. And now the inhabitants of Gibeon, had, how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. So this king of Jerusalem, uh, the, he's the leader here. He's a, in our text tonight, really, he's a picture of the devil. Uh, he finds out that uh, these Gibeonites, which the Bible tells us here was a great city, they've made a league with Israel. Now, beforehand, no doubt, they were part of all these Canaanite nations, all these Canaanite cities. No doubt they had somewhat of a confederation. We read about in chapter 9, verse 1, that they came together, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. They had all heard about Israel coming across with Joshua across the Jordan and what had happened to Jericho, what had happened to Ai. And therefore, they came against uh, the nation of Israel. And that's when these Gibeonites decided, we're going to go make a league with them. So now this king here, Adonai, uh, Adonai Zedek, I wanted to call him a different name there, Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, he is now upset about this. And he's the leader. He's going to be the leader of this opposing force that comes against the nation of Israel. And in our text tonight, he is a picture of the enemy. We have an adversary. The Bible says the devil. And he hates the people of God because we're associated with God. The reason why Satan gives you and I such a hard time, it's not really because he's afraid of us or we pose really any threat to him. It's because of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he hates the Lord ever since he's been kicked out of heaven. He hates God. He hates Christ. He's come against Christ in every way that he can. And you and I that are saved, when we get saved, we get on the side of the Lord. The devil hates that. So he's going to do everything he can to discourage us and to knock us down and to keep, keep us from getting victory. Remember, the book of Joshua is a book of victory. And it tells about how they go into Canaan land and begin to enjoy that spirit-filled, abundant life that God had promised them. So now the Gibeonites are going to get in on part of that. Even though, as we looked at last week, they're going to be uh, carriers of water, drawers of water, hewers of wood. They're going to have very menial tasks. But one thing you can say for them, they're still in uh, with the people of God. They're still part of the family of God through that league. So in a way, they're a picture of someone that would get saved. So here now we find the leader of the enemy's jealousy. Then the loss in verse number 2. Uh, the Bible tells us that this king... And his people, they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city as one of the royal cities and because it was greater than Ai and all the men thereof were mighty. So now we find the leader, he feels like he's lost something and rightly so. Do you know when someone gets saved tonight, it upsets the devil. Uh, it excites the believer. It excites uh, the Lord. The Bible said there's even worship and shouting, presence, joy in the presence of the angels in heaven. I don't think that's necessarily the angels rejoicing, but it's those that know what it's like to be redeemed, rejoicing in the presence of the angel. And we know the Lord uh, rejoices over salvation, but Satan does not. He, he doesn't like it. That's why he fights people getting saved so much. If you don't believe that, just get somebody on your heart, start praying for them, and try to go witness to them. The devil will fight you tooth and nail to keep you from witnessing to somebody and them getting saved. He hates that. So this king realizes there's a loss to their confederation. The Gibeonites are no longer on the side of the heathen. They're on the side of God's people. So it upsets him. It stirs his jealousy. And again, our enemy Satan despises us 
when we get saved, when we make that covenant with the Lord and we get into that league, into that relationship with Christ and we no longer go the way of the world. We no longer allow the adversary to tell us where to go and what to do and how to talk and how to live. Now we're on the Lord's side. Now we're trusting Him. The Holy Spirit's working in our life. Satan hates that. If you think back about when you first got saved, uh, boy, when you got saved and maybe just for a little while things were pretty smooth and then it didn't take very long for the enemy to start coming against you and attacking you, trying to hinder you. And every time you've made a step in your Christian life to get closer to the Lord, the enemy's going to come and do everything he can to keep you from making that step. When you, when you settled it in your heart, I'm going to start going to church and be faithful to the house of God. Maybe, maybe before you got saved, you, weren't, you, di you didn't grow up in church, you didn't go to church. Then you got saved and you purposed in your heart, I'm going to start going to church, I'm going to be faithful. You know the enemy came against you. Uh, I remember in our life, in my family, uh, years ago when God got to dealing with us about tithing, and we purposed in our heart we were going to tithe. Boy, it seems like the, everything come against us to try to keep us from tithing. Whether it's missions giving or any kind of separation in your life. Anytime you get ready to take a step toward the things of God, the adversary is going to try to get between you and the Lord and keep you from growing in grace. So here they realize there's a loss to their heathenistic confederacy and it stirs them up. And then when you get to verse number 3, I see not only the enemy's jealousy... Uh, but now he's got to ramp it up. He's got to do something different. And in verses 3 through 5, I see now the entourage that's joined him, the group, the, the confederation now that's joined up with him. Look at verse 3. Notice his companions that the Bible tells us about. You ever, you ever heard this, the word before, the phrase before, misery loves company? Boy, that's the truth, and that's what you're seeing right here. Uh, this king, Adonai Zedek, he's miserable and angry and upset because the Gibeonites are not on his side, they're on the Lord's side. Uh, so now he's got to have some company. He's got to get somebody involved in all of his foolishness. So verse 3, Wherefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent unto Hoham, king of Hebron, and unto Piram, king of Jarmuth, and Japhia, king of Lachish, and unto Deber, king of Eglon. You see five kings that are mentioned here. And we'll see them on down through this text. There's a five-king confederacy here, some companions of these heathenistic Canaanite kings. Now, they may have had a little bit of differentiation between their gods, but for the most part, they were the same. They worshipped idols. They had heathenistic principles and heathenistic practices. Have you ever wondered sometimes how the world could rally together so quickly over something? It's because they served the same God, little g. Uh, they go after the same things, and they have the same connection. So here you find now he's ramping it up fourfold with these other four kings and their nations coming together. There's companions here. And in Deuteronomy 1.7, uh, the Lord says something about this. He said, turn you. He's talking about when they, back in Numbers, he's reminding them back in Numbers, Moses is. Uh, remember when they were back in Numbers and they were getting ready to go into from Kadesh Barnea and go into the land and spy it out. They said there's giants in the land. And the kings of the Amorites were there. And it, it caused them to be fearful and they came back and those Ten spies gave an evil report, and the two spies, Joshua and Caleb, the good spies, which are on this journey, gave the good report. So now, 40-some years later, this generation's facing these Amorite kings again. There's a little fault in that. Maybe you could study it out and run with it sometime, that if you don't deal with the enemy in your generation, you're going to pass it on for your children to have to deal with. 
So it would do us all good tonight to deal with those enemies and those kings that are against us in our generation. So maybe it won't be as hard on the next generation that's coming up. Uh, but I, I'm afraid we miss that so often in our world. But Deuteronomy 1.7, Moses reminds them, Turn you, take your journey, go to the mount of the Amorites, and unto all the places nigh unto, uh, there unto in the plain, in the hills, and in the vale, and in the south, and by the seaside, to the land of the Canaanite, unto Lebanon, unto the great river, the river Euphrates. So back in Deuteronomy, Moses reminds them when they go back into, or go into Canaan land, how they're going to face those Amorites again from where they were in the past and how uh, that God's going to give them victory over them. If you study about these Amorites, I was looking at them quite a bit this week. Study about these Amorites, they were mostly hill dwellers and they were, they were considered to be large men. They were considered to be somewhat giants. And there's some scripture, I didn't write it all down, but there's some scripture, the king of Og, or the king Og there that's mentioned earlier in Joshua, he is told in the scripture as an Amorite, talks about him having an iron bed that, I can't remember the figures, but somewhat his bed was somewhat of about 13 feet long. So most people believe that these were giants, and we know the, the Anakims that were mentioned in Numbers and Deuteronomy, they were giants that were in this land, so... It was a fearful thing. So now all these companions, these giants, these kings of the Amorites are coming together to try to get the Gibeonites because they have joined with the people of God. And again, when you and I get saved and begin to serve God and walk for God, then it seems like the world as a whole turns against us. And really that's it. It's true because we're no longer going the way of the world. We're swimming against the current. We're going upstream. The world doesn't like that. If you'll go along with their foolishness and their sin and their ungodliness, then they'll be a friend to you. And they'll pat you on the back and they'll love you and they'll say, you're our kind of fella. Or the ladies will say, boy, you're our kind of friend. Uh, we like you, but you start standing up for God. You start standing up for Christ, especially in the workplace or in the schoolhouse or wherever you may be. Now it's in the courthouse. You start standing up for Christ and this crowd will turn on you now. They'll turn on you in a dime. And you'll see that old Amorite nature coming out in them, that heathenistic nature. Don't think just for a minute somebody can give their life to the devil and be peaceable and be kind. That's just a, a, a falsehood. That's just a facade, if you will. I'm telling you, down deep inside, you stir them enough and you'll find out what's in them. And it's wickedness and demonic power and hatefulness. And they, they want to say the Christians hate people. Real Christians don't hate people. Real born-again that We hate sin and we're against sin and we're against ungodliness. But you find a real born-again child of God, they love people. They want people to get saved. We even love our, love our enemies. We, we are commanded to pray for our enemies. And we try to do that as we walk with God. But the world says, no, we're tolerant. But you, you cross them. You swim against the stream. And you'll find out just how intolerant they are or intolerant they are. So, so here's what, that's what's happening. The Gibeonites, no doubt, they, they were fine with them until they leagued up with the nation of Israel. They were fine with them until they joined hand with Israel. And that's the way the world is. They're fine with us until we get saved and start walking with God. How many of you tonight, don't raise your hand. I had some. How many of you tonight got saved a little bit older like I did? You didn't get saved as a young child. And you, you were not really where you should have been when you got saved out in the world and maybe not even in church or at least not faithful to church. And you got saved. What started happening to those old friends? 
Did you have to tell them to leave you? No, they turned. They didn't want to be with you anymore. They, they, you know, you didn't want to go to the bar with them anymore, so they didn't want to hang around with you. You didn't want to go shoot pool and cuss and fight and raise cane, so they didn't want to be around you anymore. I, I remember one friend saying, hey, man, let's go to church. He looked at me like I had three heads. He said, why in the world would you do that? And we were not friends much longer. I, I didn't turn on him. He turned away from me because the Lord came in my heart. I made a league with the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden I was the bad guy. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, I was the one they didn't want to be around. And, and many of you experienced the same thing. So we see their companions here. But then notice his cause. The cause is revealed in verse 4. Well, we already know it, but it's revealed here. He said, come up unto me and help me. This is uh, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, crying out to these four other kings. Come up unto me. Help me that we may smite Gibeon. Why? Why? If you, if you were to interview him, if there was to be an investigative reporter there that day and stuck a microphone in this king's face, said, hey man, why are you doing that? Why are you going up here and coming after the Gibeonites? He says it right here, for it hath made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. We're angry. He, said, I, he would have said, I'm angry because they've sided with Joshua. I'm angry because they've no longer sided with me. And isn't that the way it happens when you get saved? That's the way the world does. They get angry. Uh, you're, you're a Bible thumper. You're a holy roller. Uh, there's something wrong with you. You're crazy. They think we're crazy. I heard a message. I can't remember the preacher that preached. It was years ago, and I don't remember a lot about the message. But I heard the message, and I heard the title of it. His title was, This Crazy World Thinks I'm Crazy. And that's what they'll do. They'll look at us and say, we're crazy. They don't realize they're the ones that's crazy, amen. They'll go out on the weekend, blow every dime they've got, uh, stagger to the house, not even know what they did, can't even remember what they did over the weekend, wake up with, with less than what they started out with, and say, whoo, I can't wait to go back and do it again. Now, that's insanity, amen. You, you and I tonight are living for God. We can, we can peel our head at night and not have to worry about what we've done or where we've been. So the world is crazy, but of course, they think we are. So here's the companions now and the cause. They're coming against these Gibeonites because they hate the league, the covenant that they have made with Joshua. And then we see their coalition now in verse 5. He said, therefore, because of this, the five kings of the Amorites, king of Jerusalem, king of Hebron, king of Jarmuth, Lachish, king of Eglon, gathered themselves together and went up. Now not only are they angry with the Gibeonites against them, but the Bible tells us here in verse 5, they go up, they and all their host, many, many men here, we don't know how many, the Bible doesn't tell us, and encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. Again, the Gibeonites didn't start this. The Gibeonites <coughs> did not pick on them, they picked on the Gibeonites. You know how it is, you get saved and you just want to serve God. You're just glad you're saved, he's delivered you out of life of sin and you testify and tell others, I'm glad I'm saved, you're happy, you're joyful. There's a new man living in your heart, and all of a sudden, you're at war with the world. See, I didn't have a warfare before I got saved because I was going the way of the world. I could do what I want, live like I want, and as long as I flew under the radar of the authority in my life, I'd pillow my head at night. It didn't matter how I'd talked the day before. It didn't matter the deeds I'd done. It didn't bother me one bit as long as I didn't get caught and somebody called my hand. I'd just go on as business as usual. There was no warfare in the world. I could get out in the world and do things like many of you did before you got saved. There was no conflict inside of me. I mean, every now and then, because of the morality that I had been taught, and many of you had been taught also growing up, every now and then you'd feel a little bad about something, but not bad enough to quit it, not bad enough to do anything about it. 
the, the enjoyment of sin was far greater than any kind of conscious feeling you had. But then all of a sudden you get saved and you get saved and you're in a battle. Then you turn around, oh my, where did all these enemies come from? Now I've got enemies of music, I've got enemies of pleasures of sin, I've got enemies of the world that are coming against me. And that's what happened to these Gibeonites. In essence here, they get saved in chapter 9, quote unquote saved, if we could call it that, for just sake of the type here. They join up with Israel in chapter 9, they get saved, and in one short chapter, they got five kings staring down their necks saying, we're fixing to get you. Is that not a picture of a Christian when we get saved? It definitely is. That's why the world hates the Christian way. So they make a coalition and they set out to destroy the Gibeonites. Now, let's get to the third point tonight. Here's where I want to get to. And our message is the comfort of our covenant with Christ. The joy, the peace, the rest that we have in knowing that we're saved. In verse number 6, we find now the exclamation that goes out to Joshua. Look in verse 6. Notice the direction of their cry. And the men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua to the camp to Gilgal. They didn't give up. They didn't throw up the white flag of surrender. They didn't say, well, you know what, boys? Uh, there's five kings breathing down our neck. And there's just some Israelites down the holler a good ways away down the hill, down in uh, Gilgal. And they're just right here. They're our neighbors. We better give in to them. We better just recant. We better back up. We better say, you know, we really didn't mean that league and really didn't want that. We better quit. Uh, in the days, of the, uh, the days of the early church and the persecution uh, from the Catholics, they were the, one of the greatest per persecutors of the early church. Our, our forefathers that were Bible believers, they would try to get them to recant. If you've never read the Fox's Book of Martyrs, I would encourage you to do that. Get that book and read it, and, and uh, it'll help you to understand the pricelessness of our faith. And, and I think one reason why we've got a generation now that is so quick to give up the fundamentals of the faith is because they don't understand what it costs for us to get here. They don't understand what it costs to have a Bible. They, they've never read about the life of William Tyndale and some of those men that hazarded their lives, according to the Scripture, that the gospel could go forth, that you and I could have a Bible. You and I could read the Word of God. And, and this generation is so far disconnected from sacrifice in many ways that they're willing to give that up. But you see that these Gibeonites didn't do that. They were going to hold fast. So the direction of their cry was to Joshua. You say, what does that mean to us tonight? Listen, when the enemy's breathing down our neck and trouble comes our way and the world's closing in, I'm glad we can turn to our Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can turn to him through prayer. We can turn to him through reading our Bible. We turn to him by coming to church, fellowshipping with the saints, worshiping the Lord together. We have a direction, and that direction is heavenward. That direction is the Lord Jesus. We don't, we don't have to turn to the world. As a Christian tonight, a Christian should never, ever, never turn to the world to solve our problems. The world can't give us the answer. All they can do is add more problems to the problems we already have. Don't turn to the world when you've got problems in your life. Don't, don't go out and find a book that some worldly heathen wrote when you have a problem in your life. Get into the book of books here, the Word of God, and it'll give you the answer to every issue in your life, every problem, every trial, every Amorite king that tries to knock you down. The Bible's got a remedy for that. So that's what they did. They turned to the Lord. I'm reminded of Psalm 40, 1 and 2. The psalmist David said, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me. 
and heard my cry, he brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. That's what our Lord will do for us tonight. Every now and then we find ourselves in the pit like Joseph did. We find ourselves in a ditch in life. We find ourselves in a rut. I, I like what one person gave a definition of a rut is a grave with both ends knocked out. And sometimes in life we find ourselves in a rut spiritually, financially, mentally, emotionally. You just get in a rut and you think, Lord, I'm in a fix here and I need some help. But I'm glad we can call to the Lord tonight and he hears our cry and he'll lift us up out of that horrible pit and establish our goings. Now, we see the direction of their cry and I want to encourage you tonight, maybe you feel like the Gibeonites did. Maybe, maybe this week or this month or this year, Maybe you feel like you've just been oppressed by the world and all the things of the world and the world's been pulling at you and trying to get you away from the things of God and uh, destroy your relationship with the Lord and break your fellowship with the Lord. I, I want to encourage you tonight, look to heaven and cry out to God. He's waiting on you. He's standing by patiently. And because of the great covenant we entered into with Him when we got saved, we have access to our Heavenly Father. I mean, it's free and clear. You don't have to pay a, any kind of fee to get to Jesus Christ. He's already paid that for us on Calvary. All we've got to do is turn to Him. So you notice the direction of their cry. And then I notice in verse 6 the desperation of their cry. They were desperate here. The men of Gibeon said unto Joshua to the camp of Gilgal, saying, Slack not thy hand. Look at, look at their desperation here. Slack not thy hand. What they're saying here is hurry. Get on with it as fast as you can. As Ethan would say, today yet. Amen, get with it. <laughs> Let's go. And if you've worked with Ethan, you know that. Today yet, today yet. That means get at it. Let's go. Come on. Slack not thy hand from, these, from thy servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. What a cry here. The desperation of their cry. They're saying, we don't have time to fool around, fellas. I mean, we need you now. You know what this reminds me of? I was looking at this again today. It reminded me of Peter. Remember Peter when Peter got out on the water and there's two camps of that, okay? You'll have to figure out which camp you're in. There's always, why is there always camps? I don't understand that. But anyway, that's the way we people are, especially us Baptists. But there's two camps to that deal with Peter getting out of the boat. You got one camp that said, well, he shouldn't have got out of the boat. It's the type of the church and he should have never stepped out of the boat. The Lord never told him to get out of the boat. Then you got another camp that says, well, he was the only one that walked on water out of all the disciples, even though it was a short period of time. So however you believe, I guess that's however you believe. But, but Peter got out on the, on the water. Actually, he was walking on the word of God because Jesus, uh, he said, if, if it be thee, bid thee to come unto me. And he said, come. And he started walking. And then the Bible said when he saw the winds and the waves being boisterous, then he began to sink. He got his eyes off the Lord. And what did Peter do? Peter said, Lord, help, save me. I mean, quick, it was a short prayer. I heard Brother Mays Jackson preaching on that one time. He said, if Peter had been the average Baptist, he'd have said, our heavenly Father, and there he'd have went. It'd have been over with. Uh, and I'm not against pray. If you pray like that, that's fine. But sometimes we just got to cry out, don't we? Sometimes we just, I don't know about you, there's been some times in my life I've just said, Lord, help. I couldn't even get words out. I was in such distress. So here they are, their desperation is, is shown here as they cry out to the Lord. And when we find ourselves in desperation, the very best thing we can do is cry to the Lord. They're doing exactly what they're supposed to. But then notice the discouragement in their cry, found also in verse 6. You go on down and they say this, For all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. You know what they're saying right here? 
talking about where they're at and the kings that were around, they're saying the whole world's against us. And really, their whole world was against them. Really, they're loners right now outside of the nation of Israel, which is encamped back in Gilgal some 20 miles away down the slope toward the Jordan River. <clears throat> so they feel outnumbered, and they are outnumbered. And there's going to be times in your life, I know many of you have already experienced it, but if you haven't, you will. There's going to be times in your life where you feel like the whole world's against you. There's going to be days you wake up and you look to heaven, and you may not say it, but you're going to think in your mind, Lord, what am I doing in this Christian life? What in the world? Lord, I, I didn't think it was going to be this way when I got saved. Has anybody else felt that way before? I'm just being honest. I, there's been some time since I've been saved that I've looked to heaven and said, Lord, I didn't think it'd be like this. Lord, I, I didn't think I'd have this trouble. Lord, I, I don't know why I'm having this hardship. I thought getting saved would get me out of all the trouble. Now, I've matured enough now to know it's not so. That just because we're saved doesn't mean we don't have trouble. But early on in my Christian life, I thought, well, now I'm saved. I'm serious about serving God. I'm not going to have a fight. But that is just what I did have was a fight. And a fight it was, amen. And a fight it still is. I'm here to tell you tonight, 30-some years down the road of being saved, it's still a fight. It's, it's not easy. I, it's wonderful. It's gracious. I'm thankful that I'm saved. But it doesn't just come easy the older you get. Matter of fact, sometimes it gets a little tougher in this world because this world is waxing worse and worse and things are changing. Things are totally different than when I got saved 32 years ago. Some of you here tonight has been saved 50, 60 years. You would stand and testify things are a lot different than it was when you got saved. But when you got saved, when I got saved, there were more people, I believe, that loved God back then than there are now. Church houses were more full. People were more serious about the things of God. Now we look around and we really do feel like the minority. And I'm here to tell you tonight, it's not going to get any better between now and the coming of the Lord. You, you think the crowd's getting small tonight. If you study the Bible, here's something interesting, and I think it applies to us tonight. If you study the Scripture, when Jesus started out, he had a pretty big crowd when he started his earthly ministry. But the closer he got to the cross, the smaller the crowd got. And the closer we get to the coming of the Lord, the smaller the crowd's going to get. I'll promise you that. You remember when Jesus started out and there about John chapter 6, he gave that great discourse and said, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And he wasn't talking about literally doing that. He wasn't talking about cannibalism. He was talking spiritually about taking him in. And from that point, many of them walked away, the Bible said. And that's when he looked at those others and said, are you also going to walk away? And Peter said, Lord, where shall we go? For thou hast the words of life. And then when he got all the way to the cross... How many disciples, not counting the women, how many disciples were around the cross? Only one that we know of by the name of John, other than the women. So it got very small by the time he got to the cross. And, and the, the, uh, the numbers of people that love Christ and want to serve God and have made a league with God are going to get smaller and smaller between now until we get to heaven, until the Lord returns. So expect it tonight. And that's where they were at. So here's their discouragement. They cried out in verse 6 again. And they said, all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. We are in a fix. We're in trouble. So their cry to Joshua now brings me to my final point tonight. Notice the engagement of Joshua. Joshua didn't look at them and say, well, fellas, you know, you've not always acted right. We could agree tonight. We talked about that last week. Those Gibeonites, they were slick. They were tricky. They, were, they weren't exactly right. They were not upright and upstanding and forthwith and all those things. They were sneaky. And you know what? Sometimes tonight you and I need to realize that since we've been saved, we've not always acted right. 
We've not always done right. You may have, but I haven't. I doubt you have either. If you tell me you've always done right since you got saved, I'm going to be really suspicious about what else you tell me. Amen. Because the best we do, the best we do since I've got saved, since you've got saved, the best we do, we've not always treated the Lord right. We've not always been faithful. But aren't you glad every time we cry, He's there? Aren't you glad every time we cry, He comes? I've, I've cried out to the Lord sometimes, and when I got done crying to the Lord, I felt ashamed because I hadn't been really walking with the Lord like I should have. And I hadn't been as faithful as I should have. And, and I felt ashamed to even cry out to him. I thought, Lord, you shouldn't even answer my prayers sorry as I've been. Do you know what? That didn't change him coming my way. That didn't change him helping me. So here they are now. They cry out to Joshua. And look at the engagement of Joshua. Look at the blessing of this. In verses 7 and 8, notice his attention. The Bible didn't say that Joshua made fun of them. The Bible didn't say that Joshua delayed. The Bible said, so Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into thine hand. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. You notice the attention that Joshua gives to the Gibeonites. I don't know what else Joshua was doing, but I'm sure they had other things to do. Joshua, the nation of Israel, the mighty men of valor, drop everything they're doing and go to the aid of the Gibeonites. Well, I'm glad tonight that when I call on the Lord and you call on the Lord, and when I exercise that covenant right of being a child of God and being saved to get to call on my heavenly Father, I'm glad he'll drop what he's doing and come to where I am. I'm glad he'll drop what he's doing and come to where you're at. He'll help you. He, he'll, he'll put his attention on you. There's something about a mother and even a daddy, but especially a mother. Something about a mother, when she hears that child cry, nothing else in the world gets her attention. Nothing else in the world's going to bother her. She focuses on the, the cry of that child. She runs to that child to try to relieve its pain. Boy, I'm telling you, we have a heavenly father that's better than any earthly mother tonight. And he'll run to us and he'll come to our aid. And that's what Joshua does here. When we're in trouble, our heavenly Joshua cares Deuteronomy 31.6 says this, Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. You know what? There's probably somebody in this congregation tonight, and for no other reason you needed to come to church tonight and hear that God's not going to fail you. Right now you're in a situation, you're thinking God's going to fail you. I know maybe down deep inside you don't, but in the flesh realm and in our mind we're thinking, oh, this don't look good. Don't look like God's going to help me in this situation. This looks like I'm going down. I'm here to remind you tonight, he's not going to forsake you. He's not going to fail you. If you are his child tonight, because of that covenant league of salvation, we have the promise of God taking care of us. We have the promise of him meeting the needs in our life. So you find that attention. Then notice his action in verse number 9. Joshua therefore came unto them. Notice the word in your Bible, suddenly. I like that. When I'm in trouble, you know when I want help? I want it yesterday. <laughs> I want it now. I want it suddenly. I don't want help tomorrow. I don't want help next week. When I'm crying out, I want help now. And now's when I need the Lord to come on the scene. That's what Joshua did. He came suddenly to the aid of Gibeon. If you'll look at a map sometime, you'll find out that Joshua and these men traveled 20 miles, approximately 20 miles, up steep terrain at night. Notice the scripture, it was at night. This was a difficult time. Verse number 9, Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly 
and went up from Gilgal all night. Not just at night, but all night. I'm sure they had been up all day. They didn't know they were going to get this call in the nighttime. They didn't know in the evening they were going to get the word that this had happened and they needed help and the Gibeonites needed some relief and some rescue. But as soon as they heard it, it didn't matter that it was nighttime. Aren't you glad tonight God doesn't have closing hours? I'm telling you, last Friday we were camping. I, I messed up the last set of contacts I got. If you don't wear contacts, this won't mean a thing to you. But I messed up the last set I got, and I had to wear glasses. And I hate wearing glasses. I feel like I'm in a fishbowl. <clears throat> I don't have my peripheral vision. Uh, my driving's not that good anyway, but it's a whole lot worse with glasses. Say amen right there, honey. She told me all week, you're killing me, amen. <laughs> and really, I, it is different with glasses. So, so I thought, man, they, when they open up Monday morning, I'm going to be there. Guess what? They were closed Monday. I'm t- frustrated me to death. I finally got them this evening, and I was so relieved. I'm a different person. I'm sorry if I was ill Sunday, but something about wearing those glasses when you don't have to wear them or you're not used to wearing them, I hate it. I mean, I can't stand it. I feel vulnerable. I can't see without them. And I got those contacts today. Man, I felt so good driving back home. I felt so, you know, I felt in control. I felt like everything was all right. Say amen right there, men. You know we like to be in control. <laughs> but can you imagine? Can you imagine calling on the Lord and him saying, well, the business hours, it's closed. I'll have to come to you next week. I'll have to help you tomorrow. No, immediately, suddenly, Joshua leaves 20 miles of journey in the night through rough terrain, gets to where they're at. Let me give you this and I'll finish. Notice his avail. Verses 10 and 11. Look how the Lord handled this. And the Lord discomfited them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased them along the way that goeth up to Beth Horon and smote them to Azekah unto Makedah. I mean, here's five kings, five armies, five townships or cities with all kinds of men and warriors come down on the Gibeonites probably thinking, man, we've got them. Probably thinking they won't get out of this. I I don't know for sure. The Bible does tell us here they encamped before Gibeon. More than likely they compassed Gibeon. More than likely they came around them. That's how armies would do in that day. And even nowadays, if you're surrounded like that, you're in trouble. If you're surrounded, uh, you know, uh, then then you're usually in 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 a big fix. And that's where they were at. So now you find God sends Joshua and these mighty men. God empowers them to come in and rescue the Gibeonites. And then notice in verse 11 how the Lord ramps it up. And it came to pass as they fled from before Israel that there were and were in the going down to Beth Horon that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them to Azekah and they died. They were more which died in the hailstones than they who the children of Israel slew with a sword. Look how God intervened for them. That was a miracle. That was, that was only something supernatural that God could have done. Heard a preacher say one time, say, you might not throw rocks, but God does. You ever heard anybody say, don't throw rocks at people? God threw rocks at people, amen. Those hailstones killed them. Some of you remember years ago, we were out in South Dakota, and that big hailstorm came through. And I mean, baseball-sized hailstones, if you'd got out in that, it would have probably bashed your head in. God sent some hailstones and wiped them out. Why did all this happen? Why did God do the supernatural? Why did God do for them what he hadn't done for anybody else? Because of that covenant league with Israel. And tonight you and I just need to be reminded we've got a God that will take care of us. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what's bothering you, keeping you up at night, giving you a hard time about sleeping. But I'm here to tell you tonight if you're saved, if you're a child of God and you'll walk with God and stay with God, he'll take care of you. 
He'll help you. He'll strengthen you. He'll do the miraculous in your life. We read this and we think, well, and next week or next time we're in this week after next, we'll see uh, another miracle that God did just a few verses after this in keeping the sun from going down. That's a miracle. Never happened before or since according to the scripture. And God did that for Joshua. Well, why did he do all that? Because they were his children. Why did he do that for the Gibeonites? Because of a league that he had, they had made with Israel. And because of our covenant tonight of salvation with our Lord and Savior, he'll take care of us this evening. I know it's a simple thought tonight, but I think it's something we need to be reminded of. And there's a great illustration here with Israel and the Gibeonites of how God took care of them, even though they were not what they were supposed to be. And you and I would have to admit tonight we're not what we're, even on a good day, even on a really good day, our righteousness is as filthy rags. We're not what we're supposed to be. But I'm glad God is always what he's supposed to be. And he always does everything that he's supposed to do. We can trust him tonight. And I believe those Gibeonites after this battle probably looked at each other and said, boy, I'm glad we made a, a league with Israel. I'm glad we made a covenant with Israel. I can't tell you how many times since I've been saved that I've thought in my heart, I'm glad I'm saved. I'm glad I made a covenant with the Lord one day. I'm glad I got in. I'm glad I'm a child of God. My, what a blessing it is to be saved tonight. I hope this will help you, encourage you, whatever you're going through. Know the Lord's with you tonight. Let's stand and y'all come get a song together. Heads bowed just a moment. If you need the altar, maybe somebody needs to pray tonight. Maybe somebody's carrying a heavy burden. You want to come lay that burden at the, on the altar before the Lord. You do that tonight. Don't leave.